Hello and welcome to the Holistic Healing Project with me, Dr. Lauren MacDonald. Each week I will be sitting down with a range of experts, thought leaders and other inspiring humans to explore how we can all bring more healing into our lives. I believe we all have the capacity to self-heal, to experience more joy, greater meaning and deeper connection. I really hope these conversations inspire and support you on your own journey back to wholeness. Hi everyone, I just want to say the biggest thank you for tuning into the podcast and for subscribing and rating and reviewing. It is all really, really helpful and it's also just lovely to hear that the concept of healing is resonating and that you're enjoying the conversations. Today I am speaking with Dr. Robin Fawcett, who is an American-trained, London-based general practitioner. She is also a doTERRA essential oil advocate and a TEDx speaker. In this episode, we discuss the two big life events that really help Robin understand the difference between healing and curing, how her own cancer diagnosis really became a transformative experience. We also discuss how she has changed as a doctor as a result of her experience and how nature was key in her own healing journey. I really hope you enjoy this episode. And as always, if you can rate and review, that would be really, really helpful. Dr. Robin Fawcett, welcome, my friend. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's so lovely to have you here. Thank you so much. Um, how are you today? I'm good. The sun is shining. It's a beautiful autumn day. It's an easy day to be feeling really happy. Yeah, and it's so nice to see you. I mean, last time we got together was a few months ago. We shared the stage at True Fields Festival, which for those of you listening who aren't aware of this amazing little festival, it's the UK's first holistic health and cancer awareness festival. And Robin and I shared the stage along with another colleague. And we basically just took a deep dive into holistic healing and the difference between healing and curing, which we're all really passionate about. So we're going to have another deeper dive today on that topic. Um, I'm really excited to speak to you. I know you're so passionate about this subject and you have been for a long time. Um, obviously, we've, we've kind of connected through Instagram, but also through our own stories and our own journeys with cancer. But you mentioned at the festival that you actually have been interested in healing and, and had a real awareness of it long before your own cancer experience. Would you mind, you know, starting off with that? Sure. Um, it's really interesting, actually. I was listening to, I think it was one of Brené Brown's TED Talks, or maybe it was an interview with her, where she mentioned a quote, I think it's a saying in Texas where she's from, that you've got to dance with the one that brung you. I love <laughs> that. Texan brung you. Yeah. <laughs> And I don't even remember what she was talking about, but I thought, oh, okay, actually, yeah, I think cancer is the, the one I've got to dance with. It's the one that brung me. And I think that was my first introduction into the world of, of healing and, and the difference between healing and curing, because my father was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer when he was 53. I was 17. And he was metastatic at diagnosis. And as many people know, it's it's, it's not a cancer you want to be diagnosed with mm. um, in terms of the prognosis. And I witnessed such a transformation in him. He was this very type A, hardworking, driven, focused, quite intense man. And 
as once, once the diagnosis and the, the prognosis was made clear, he and my mother, we lived here in the UK and he, and my mother went off to the Bristol cancer center, which is now called the Penny Brone, um, yeah. cancer center. So, yeah. And they went on a residential retreat. If you don't know my dad, it was really hard to imagine him going on a holistic cancer <laughs> retreat. And he really came back very changed. And I think it was a very transformative week for both of them. Um, and lots of funny stories about, you know, my dad, the, the African drumming session wasn't so much for him. <laughs> um, but I witnessed, you know, he lived 11 months and actually ended up dying from a complication of his chemotherapy rather than the cancer itself. And how old were you at this time? So I was 18 when he died. Mm. And the transformation that, that he went through and the shift in terms of his state of being is all I can describe it as he suddenly he became someone who was much more peaceful much quieter in many ways more reflective um happier in many ways which sounds crazy um because he he wanted to keep living he certainly didn't want to leave us but there was an inner peace that he had never had before that and i was able to see what a difference things like massage and meditation he did a lot of visualization um, my mother said, I didn't even know this. I'm hearing things now from my mother that he was doing, um, tapping his thymus, talking to his immune system, and all of these things that actually gave him a real sense of of power and of peace. And so that experience, you know, that was there for me at a young age. And then when I, so as I mentioned at True Fields, when I applied to medical school, that was the subject of my essay. And, the, and I did my university and medical school in the U.S. So we do an undergraduate degree first. So I did a four-year undergraduate degree, and then I applied to med school. And in my essay, I talked about how, for me, my father's experience showed me the difference between healing and curing, because although his cancer wasn't cured, his journey was a very healing one. And so I think that was that was there. That was kind of in my, in my intellectual soil when mm. I went off to... To medical school. It's such a big lesson to have learned so young because certainly I didn't, hadn't really comprehended the idea of healing during medical school or after medical school. You know, it really was my own experience being diagnosed with cancer and then kind of the years that followed that taught me the difference between healing and curing. So to have that, you know, deep understanding at 18 is pretty incredible, but I appreciate it came from a, you know, a lived life lesson and I think lots of people, especially young people who've had a serious illness or lost a family member or experienced this sort of grief or trauma or struggle that's unusual at that age, I did feel very alone with this experience and this understanding. And I, my best friend from medical school, who is funnily enough now an oncologist and um, a palliative care consultant, I just locked eyes on her the second we walked into the room um, the, the auditorium on the first day of medical school. And I just, I somehow recognized in her someone who had had, who'd lived some life before coming to medical school. And it turns out she'd been an accountant in New York City for four years before, in between mm. her university and medical school. But I just somehow recognized in her somebody who had a little bit more life under her belt before coming into medical school. And I think that makes a huge difference because it, it was this little glimmer of insight and not even something I, I carried around consciously, but it was there and in me. But it's not the norm in medical school, as you know, and among even very trained and senior doctors, that's not a, a kernel of understanding that's very common. And so it can feel very alienating and very isolating to feel like you have a slightly 
different understanding of of disease and suffering than than your colleagues. Yeah, and then obviously when we fast forward to now and what you've been going through for the last year. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, it's given you a whole nother, a whole nother <laughs> level. <laughs> it's, yeah, a level of maybe I could have done without, but, um, but yes, a year ago, just about a year ago now, I was diagnosed with very early stage breast cancer. So stage zero, it's also called DCIS, um, ductal carcinoma in situ. Um, my first and my last mammogram. And you were um, how old at that time? 40. 40. And my mother had had breast cancer, so she had breast cancer three years ago, and her sister had had breast cancer a long time ago and is doing great. So I was aware that I was at risk, but we'd had genetic testing done um, on that side of the family, and there was no breast cancer gene. So I had a false sense of complacency, I think. Um, And because I have been quite aware of lifestyle medicine and things you can do to reduce cancer risk, I was genuinely shocked to get the diagnosis. Then we found out the next month that, in fact, I did inherit a breast cancer gene, the BRCA2 gene, from my father. Mm. And that something I didn't even know as a doctor, which is that breast cancer genetic mutations are linked to other cancers. For BRCA2 gene carriers, the mutation carriers were at risk for pancreatic cancer, as well as ovarian breast and melanoma. So that came as a, as a huge shock. So life really got turned upside down a year ago. Yes. And where, you know, we're sitting here today, you're looking so well, um, radiant. Are you feeling that? Obviously on the outside you can, you can give off that, but how are you feeling inside after everything that's happened in the last year? Still, I feel like I'm still most days in a, in a, in a combination of sort of shock and disbelief at what has happened this year. You know, when anyone goes through, as you know, a transformative diagnosis or experience of healthcare, and I've had two quite radical surgeries in the last year, I feel sort of tender, I think is the best word for it. Um, and I'm obsessed with plants and hmm. ferns and trees and, you know, like, like a fern uncurling that you think, gosh, there's actually real strength and power here, but quite tender. <laughs> and so I'm optimistic most days, but I definitely have moments of feeling really fearful about the future as well. Um, tinged with a lot of gratitude, especially having had significant experience of, of medicine by this stage in my life, I'm aware of just how just how much worse it can be and how lucky I am that I was walking around with a, a mutation that I was unaware of and haven't been getting screening, haven't even been thinking about it, and, and yet my breast cancer was caught at such an early stage. I do feel very, very grateful that that's, that that's the stage mm. that where I became aware of, of, of what I'm facing. So on a kind of very physical level, you've had the surgeries, you've, you sound like you were very happy with your surgeon, and then the healing comes. Yes. So is that the phase you're, you're kind of navigating yes. at the moment? And I think there's so many layers and stages to it all. And I have a very wise friend who had breast cancer a few years ago, and, and she actually drew a graph on a piece of paper for me um, last Christmas before I'd had my mastectomies. And she had had chemotherapy and radiation as well as a mastectomy. And she said, here's the thing. Just when things are at their hardest physically and when you're really in the thick of, of the physical healing, often emotionally you're feeling at your strongest, which seems paradoxical. And yet once all of the, the physical healing is done, and that was her experience, that once she'd finished chemotherapy, she'd finished radiation, the surgery was all behind her. She said, that's actually when she started to struggle more emotionally and spiritually, that that's when 
kind of the dust settles and the reality of it all sinks in. So luckily I was prepared for that because especially with having bilateral mastectomies and then having gynae surgery as well, you know, I was so focused on healing physically. And so luckily I was prepared for the fact that once I, you know, I felt strong and sort of back to myself with my new self physically, more of the sort of existential questions started to creep in really examining my life and where I was at and what, what was serving me well and the things that I suddenly had more courage to say no to and the things that suddenly was crystal clear were not for me mm-hmm. and not how I wanted to be living. And as many women will know, if you've had breast surgery, and in my case, I did not have reconstruction. So suddenly even my clothes don't fit. <laughs> really, really trivial things. Yeah, shopping trip needed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But suddenly, you know, I have a very yeah. different physical look and appearance. And so that even that, so what, cl- what sort of clothes do I want to wear? Where, where, how do I feel most me? Um, you know, really trivial questions suddenly can become quite big ones. And do you feel there's a, a kind of pre-cancer Robin and a post-cancer Robin, or are you kind of coming back to yourself? I'm still me, and I'm the same me I've ever been. I think I know myself better now, and I see myself better now. I think it's more the things that I spent my time and energy on pre-cancer are different Mm, different priorities, yes. different yeah, yes. different energies, and I think I think for many people in the developed world today, and I think maybe especially women, we're really good at saying yes to things or feeling obliged to do things or keeping up appearances. For some people, is is a, is a thing. Not so much for me, but what I want to spend my energy on, I feel like I have more permission to to dive into that. And I think many medical doctors will relate to this. Some of us end up in medicine because we're fulfilling expectations or we're kind of doing the, doing the thing. And, and anyone who's been in higher education knows that you, you're ticking boxes for so many years of getting the exams, getting the grades, studying the thing and applying for the next thing. You can lose sight of actually of who you are and what's important to you. And I'm grateful that I've had little breaks and opportunities to kind of come back to myself even before cancer, whether it was reflecting on my father's experience. The medical school I went to had a center for integrative medicine. And so we had coursework or speakers throughout medical school that would just be a little reminder that actually the ivory towers and the the prestigious this and the specialty that's the hardest to get. So everyone wants to get into it. That that's actually not what it's all about. Yeah, great. I love that because we don't have enough. There's not really an integrative medicine scene here. I know we've got lifestyle medicine and functional functional medicine, but there's definitely that next level that's still missing, I I believe, within our kind of NHS system, definitely. Um, You shared with me earlier a beautiful passage from a book. Would you mind reading that out today? Sure, I'd be happy to. It's a book called My Grandfather's Blessings, and it's written by Rachel Naomi Remen, who is a medical doctor in the United States. And I had the great privilege. She came and spoke to our medical school and she just has the most incredible presence. She is a family doctor. She's been a pediatrician and she's lived with severe Crohn's disease since she was a teenager. So she has this incredible insight into living with suffering and living with disease and with healing. And she now does a lot of work with medical students and doctors to kind of help them really be healers rather than just doctors. And so this passage is about a class that she taught with medical students on genetic disease. In the presence of suffering, everyone needs to find refuge. 
The difficulty we have in knowing where to find our strength came home to me when I taught a group of beginning medical students a class on genetic disease. The woman who had generously agreed to be interviewed for the class was a young mother who had recently discovered that she carried a gene that would arrest the brain growth of both her young children. Her loss was beyond words, its dimensions instantly understandable by mothers since the beginning of time. The students were young and I was not sure how they would respond to her. Immediately after she left the room, there was, in fact, a moment of silence when something genuine, intimate, and profoundly human was in our midst. Sadly, it disappeared as the students rushed to a discussion of the disease entity that had caused this tragedy. For the next half hour, they analyzed, labeled, and shared research data and vast amounts of information about mental retardation. Slowly, I began to understand that the suffering we had witnessed had far exceeded the life experience in the room. No one had yet accumulated the wisdom to respond to it or the strength to be present for it. Confronted by something so vast and so impervious to all medical expertise, the students were struggling to contain it by understanding its pathology. They had sought refuge from suffering in their science. But life does not work that way. Science is not a place of refuge. It cannot protect us from suffering. Hiding from suffering only makes us more afraid. We avoid suffering only at the great cost of distancing ourselves from life. In order to live fully, we may need to look deeply and respectfully at our own suffering and at the suffering of others. In the depths of every wound we have survived is the strength we need to live. The wisdom our wounds can offer us is a place of refuge. Finding this is not for the faint of heart, but then neither is life. Hmm. I really resonate with that as well. I can almost see myself in those medical students. Yes. And then the way I practice now. Yes. Really seeing the patients and seeing their experience. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And I think for me, it's, it's a useful reminder, you know, reading those beautiful words, I think reminds us whenever we feel tempted. And it's so hard. You know, I, I work in general practice here in the NHS and, you know, in 10 minute appointments, all the time pressure, it's so much easier to not really see and feel people's experience and to see the suffering and let it be a teacher and not to just dive into the science. And that's why, you know, I have, <laughs> I have a, a friend who's a doctor herself and she won't see a doctor under the age of 40. She really wants to see older <laughs> older doctors because she says that by then they've got enough they've got more wisdom yeah this topic of this podcast is obviously healing and it's such a loaded word and it means so many different things for so many people so I'd be really interested to find out what does healing mean for you and is it different now kind of sitting where you are today versus maybe a year ago um, where things were well it's certainly more personal to me now and, you know, someone I've been interested in integrative medicine and, and this idea of healing, you know, as we discussed for years, but I've noticed now, especially with social media and kind of the natural wellness industry, it's a word that's, that's used a lot and almost overused and it's used in many different ways. And, and, you know, I'm a great lover of words and the problem when a word is overused is it kind of loses all sense of meaning, at least for me. So I found it really helpful for myself in the spring. I actually looked up the word 
to, or the word heal in a dictionary. Cause I thought, what, what actually is anybody even talking about? And, and how do we separate out some of the ridiculous things that we see and the ridiculous claims and, and the marketing a, spin? Yeah, and it can be a very off-putting word for a lot of people, I think, when, yes. when they think of it as maybe shamanic healers being able to cure you of disease by purely touching you. I mean, a lot of people would immediately be turned off by that word generally, you know. Yes, or if, if someone's trying to sell you a, you know, a product on the shelf of the health food store and that's going to heal you, mm. you know, kind of for me, I just start rolling my eyes. But when I looked up what the word actually means, it really talks about returning to a place of wholeness and trying to bring an end to suffering. And that really helped me because my medical care up until that point, I was fortunate. I didn't need to have any chemotherapy or radiation. I just needed to have surgery. And that in particular though, is such a physical such a physical intervention surgery that with, it was with e- physical healing that follows. Yes. You know what they, do, whereas, it, you know, it doesn't affect your mood. It is just an intervention on your physical body in a very kind of cut and dried way. That's perhaps different from chemotherapy or radiation, which might affect you on a different level. This was just something happening to my body. And as I healed physically, I suddenly became aware that that, that, that part of my journey was not really healing what needed to heal was the emotional impact. And I actually made a list because I'm a little nerdy that way. <laughs> I made a list. I love you did this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, looking at the definition and thinking, well, how can I apply that to my experience? And I think I came up with nine things, nine separate things that had to be healed. And really only two of them on the list were physical. And the rest of it was understanding the meaning of, of, of what I've learned about my family history, about hereditary cancer syndrome, about breasts, about femininity, about what society thinks of bodies. The relationship even you have as a patient with a doctor, that was something that needed healing for me because my experience wasn't always positive. I had a great surgeon, but in finding that great surgeon, I'd had a rocky road. And so I had to heal some fairly traumatic experiences at the hands of modern medicine, which was a shock to someone who had been quite proud to work in that space. And I suddenly was recognizing just how traumatic medical care can be. So I had to heal some of the, you know, the list was long and yet there's not a lot that your medical team can offer you for that. Yeah. This is where your own journey really begins. Exactly. For me, I very much felt like I was spat out the other end yes um, after well years of recurrent surgeries and then two years of going to hospital every three weeks for treatment and blood tests and scans and then suddenly it was just this very strange landscape which where I was trying to put everything back together and yes. put myself back together yeah it's like Humpty Dumpty <laughs> like you're sort of lying in pieces on the ground and yeah. thinking okay and I where's guess- the support and what do I do next and it really yeah I mean I love I'm a nerd as well I love researching so on one level it was a kind of quite cerebral yes. activity for me but then where the real healing happened was when I could take it in and start embodying what I was learning Yes, a huge part of my sort of growth and development has been learning that a lot of how I'm going to know what to do next is going to come as much from my heart and my gut as from my head, and that I'm not the same thing as my thoughts. And especially experiencing as a patient how different my thoughts and mindset can be. I found every medical appointment, even with a nice surgeon, that whole experience of a medical appointment would put me into a much more negative mindset 
and the statistics, you know, my, my statistics of developing cancer, my lifetime would suddenly seem much scarier. Um, and I would have to work really hard after and before every medical appointment to kind of reset my mindset and to return to a place of not feeling panicky about the future. Did the experience change how you feel about working in medicine as well? Have you, have you, you're about to go back to work, is that right? Yes, yeah. yes. So I, I started back um, a couple of weeks ago um, doing some trial sessions at a, at a new GP practice. What, what became clear to me was I, I couldn't carry on. I was doing locum GP work and the positives of that are having a bit more flexibility and um, being able to work my schedule around my family life and, and suddenly the, the negatives including isolation, not knowing your patients, those suddenly began to matter a lot more. And I also wasn't willing to work in high stress environments. Suddenly my own mental well-being. I wanted to enjoy my work. And so I've been really lucky to find a, a, another surgery to work at. But yes, it, it has changed. I think I'm a lot more careful now of thinking about the impact of my words and my manner on my patients. And I think I can understand in a very physical way now myself how it feels to be in the patient chair. And although I, 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 you know, I've had the odd appointment for, you know, it's not like I've never been in a hospital before as a patient, but somehow this felt different because it was more life and death. Mm -hmm. There's a real vulnerability, isn't there? Yes. And helplessness. And I think, you know, having surgery in particular, big surgeries, you are very helpless. Um, as part of it, that's the only way it works is if you're knocked out unconscious and people are doing things to your body without being aware of it. And that's, that can make you feel quite powerless. So how have you kind of, you've mentioned a few things you've been doing, but how else have you empowered yourself to heal? What's been your kind of healing prescription or is it not as simple as that? Is it just kind of your finding your way in this new space? Yes. And I think, yeah, I absolutely don't have a prescription. It's been, for me, it's been figuring out what works and it has changed it has changed around the time of surgery, being really physically active was really important to me and helping my body feel strong and helping me feel strong in my body. I was going to the gym a lot more and doing more intense exercise, which sounds crazy right after surgery, but that's actually what felt good. And doing strength training on my legs when I couldn't use my arms helped me feel really sort of strong and reminded me of my body's strength. But in recent months, I felt more like actually I needed to be more gentle but through it all, I think that the common theme for me has been spending time in nature. And I've always been a bit of a tree hugger. Yeah, I, I love my I garden. Love watching your Instagram, I love, <laughs> I love how much you love trees. <laughs> and that's what I figured out that was actually around my medical appointments. I would structure an extra time to walk the really long way to the train station through the park. And I would make sure that after my appointment, I was walking, even if it was in central London, I would walk to the train station home through green parks and you know, I would do these crazy routes that would bring me back to the train station through parks because it's so easy to get caught up in thinking of our lives as being, I guess, so linear and so objective somehow and reminding myself of the time scale of the earth, which sounds really crazy, but you know, looking at a tree and how long a tree has been alive and that, you know, the trees that we can see out of my window right now we're here before I was born, and whether I die next year or in 40 years, that tree's probably going to still be there to outlive me. And that just, it's almost like it put, put in perspective the scope of my life and what it's all about. And it gave me this huge sense of peace 
to remind myself that I'm, I'm part of this rhythm that's been in place for, you know, millennia and it's going to keep going and I can release a little bit of that sense of, I need to control every minute of what's going to happen to me. Mm-hmm. And I find there's a real grounding that happens. I mean, yes. I, I physically ground every day after work, unless it's winter and it's frosty, but I'll take my socks off and I will go outside and yes. walk through the long, long grass. We've got fields at the back of our house. And yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to be for long, just a few minutes of yes. walking barefoot, really physically grounding myself. Oh, it's just incredible. And I, you know, this is a practice that I don't even think I read about it. It just intuitively exactly. I felt the need, you know, to really, when everything was so chaotic and out of control and there was no certainty about my future, it was just certain and grounding. Absolutely. I love um, one of my favorite writers this year has been Robert McFarlane and he's a, a nature writer um, here in the UK and he's written some beautiful books about the, really it's the relationship between human beings and landscape and human beings in the natural world and wild places. And even his recent book is on the underworld, um, that it's all about the things that happen under the ground and he, it, beautiful bits on trees and the, what's going on actually below the surface that we're not even aware of. And even just reading about nature has helped me almost just exhale, take a really long exhale and just sort of, okay reminding myself that, you know, actually the world doesn't revolve around me and whether I live for 50 years or 90 years is not going to change the world spinning on its axis. And it, you know, it almost helps me hold the whole experience a lot more lightly and think about how I can use the life I've been given. How can I, how can I use that, the gift of what I have and turn that into something that's positive and might bless other people and just live more in that kind of state of love and and not grasping hard do you think becoming ill yourself and the journey you've gone on is were you always a spiritual person or is that something that's no coming from the u.s my exposure to spirituality was with a very christian lens um, through most of it and i had some friends i still do have friends who are quite religious um, in christian spirituality but a lot of the things that that they believed were just shattered into a million pieces by what I witnessed in medical school. And I think many medics will relate to that, that some of the ideas of everything happens for a reason. And and some of these, what I think now is quite simplistic ways of looking at, at, at suffering in particular, when you see some of the things that most of us witness in our medical training, those words become almost an insult to the experience of, 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 illness and suffering and death. And it's a slap in the face almost to people who are walking in a valley of the shadow to, 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 to throw those sort of trite concepts of everything to God's purpose. And all of that just suddenly made no sense to me and was actually quite offensive um, given what I'd witnessed my patients going through. And so I became very agnostic, maybe even atheist um, as a result of my medical training. Um, again, because the sort of spirituality I'd been exposed to just didn't fit with the things I'd witnessed. Then you move on past that, and especially in general practice and you know the, the more people side of it, and you start to actually witness a different part of life and you come to a different understanding of where we might all fit in in this crazy world. It's more about wonder and curi- curiosity and mystery for me now than it is about you know trite verses about what it's all for. And how do we start to bring that back into the healthcare system because for so long now we've had this kind of it's the focus is on cure 
and modern me- medicine has been incredible. I wouldn't be sitting here yeah. alive interviewing you if if we didn't have mo- modern medicine. And yet there's such a lack of heart. And how do we start to bring that back in? Because I feel like we've got a long way. We're, we're so far at the other end now. Yeah. Do you have any ideas? I know you're quite passionate. This is like a p- personal passion project, isn't it? It really well? is. And I'm still trying to figure out how, I really feel like this is a new purpose of mine. I think for me, especially with having studied the history of medicine with an MA, I'm realizing that especially if you take a historical look at medicine, the practice of medicine is an art. Mm, The art of healing. Yes. It's not a science. Science is a tool in our toolkit. People aren't machines. You cannot look at illness and suffering and even a diagnosis or a set of lab results. And you can't look at that as if it's anything other than a tiny piece of what's going on for that human being. And everyone is different. Everyone's experience of illness. Even if you take women who've had, say, breast cancer, and they all have exactly the same stage and size of tumor and tumor markers and even the tumor genome, that can all be identical, and yet they're having a completely different experience of their, of their illness. And that diagnosis, maybe they don't even see it as an illness. You know, it, It's so subjective. And I think the real key in medicine is the relationship between the doctor and the patient. And we forget that at our peril. And I think because of some of the amazing advances we've seen, we get overexcited about the science of it. And the science, as you say, it's very important. It's a crucial part of what we do now in medicine, but we've forgotten that human aspect. And I think that's why we see doctors are burning out at such a high risk and why the mental health of physicians is so much worse than the general population and why people are increasingly losing their trust. So there was a study recently that shows that that the general population, our trust in big medical centers is at a record low in the modern era. And I think that's because we don't feel seen as people. And whether we're conscious of that or not, I think that's why the alternative and complementary medicine world is still alive and thriving, Mm -hmm. is I think those traditions have never forgotten that at the root of the job of being a healer is to connect with someone's humanity. Now, I had this experience last week, very clearly for me, I went to see an osteopath because I've had this sort of nagging tension in my back, which I'm sure is related to all the surgeries and one side of my body healing differently than the other. So a pretty minor thing. And yet before he examined my back, he acknowledged what it feels like as a woman who's had mastectomies to have your body looked at, even just looked at with clothes on. And he saw that and he saw that I might feel differently about my body than I did before my surgeries. He acknowledged that. He gave me permission to not want to be looked at. He gave me permission to not want to be touched. He said, you might think you're fine, but for many women having even their shoulders touched can be quite triggering. And he walked me through what consent looks like to be looked at and touched in a way that no doctor has in this whole process. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is actually how every doctor should speak to someone who's had the kind of surgery I've had. How incredibly healing that was for me to have my experience seen and understood. And this is by a man who hasn't been to medical school. And yet that experience for me, I just thought, oh my gosh, he gets it. And this isn't hard. It didn't take time. I was going to say, presumably it was a very short... Yeah. I mean, it took two minutes and it's this probably the same conversation, the same length of time a surgeon would could spend 
telling you how to put your gown on or getting the nurse in the room to be a chaperone or all the other things that we already do. It doesn't take time. But the impact's huge. But the impact is huge. And I felt so much safer and I didn't walk away with those fearful feelings. And I think that's just because he actually, he just saw me as a human being. And I think in medicine, we think that that costs us something. But I actually think if if we lean into that a little bit more, we're going to find that it makes us less burned out, less stressed. We're going to see our own role for what it is, which is not just about the physical stuff at all. You know, surveys have shown most patients would rather have a doctor who makes mistakes, but has good communication skills and has a sees them as a human being, two thirds of patients would rather have that than a perfect doctor with no bedside manner. There's a real need. Not only do patients want it, but I think doctors are opening up to the fact that, hang on, we've been missing a really key element for helping people to heal. A paradigm shift is coming. Well, we have, especially in this country, it's, it's crazy. We've got a shortage of doctors. We've got GPs who are quitting or reducing their hours or retiring early because of burnout. And you think, gosh, how much we could save the healthcare system if we invest in the doctors we have and helped them. It's almost a remembering, isn't it? Isn't it remembering why we went into medicine in the first place? Because people do go into medicine for very, very good reasons and because they really care about helping people. It's a remembering of what we're in this for and why we decided to do this and filling our tool belt with, with more than just the latest science and the latest algorithm for treating high blood pressure. It's sort of it's a remembering, I think, more than adding to the burden of something we didn't know before. It's just returning to it. Yeah, I love that. One final question, which I think you've, you've definitely touched on a number of times, but what does holistic healing mean to you? And is there any kind of tips or any wisdom you'd like to share just to close? I think the word holistic, it's a very encompassing word. For me, holistic healing means that on some days, healing might look like cleaning out my kitchen cupboards <laughs> and getting my bedroom drawers in order. And on other days, it might mean meditation. On other days, it might mean singing at the top of my lungs that actually seeing myself as a very complex, rounded being who has many different sides and many different needs and that it's okay. It's really, I think for me, it's giving myself permission to do what I need in a particular day or in a particular month or a season. And that, that can look like not just the physical, but it it can look like the space I live in. It can look like how I move my body or how I am with, in my relationships. It can mean I have permission to really focus on whatever I think I need to help remind me of my wholeness. And trees. And trees. Always trees. trees. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. I have loved, loved talking with you. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Just want to take a moment to invite you to join the Holistic Healing Inner Circle, an online group membership for self-healing, community and transformation. Doors open on the 15th of January and will be starting on the 29th of January. The Holistic Healing Inner Circle is a monthly membership that will provide you with the tools, knowledge, support and community to keep you moving forward, body, mind, heart and soul. Each month we have monthly masterclasses, group calls, meditations, journaling prompts and a book club. There's also access to a private online community where you will be witnessed on your healing journey. If you're interested in joining us, please head on over to my website, drlaurenmacdonald.com, 
and check it out. I really look forward to supporting your healing and transformation. Please remember that whilst I am a qualified medical doctor, I am not your medical doctor. So whilst we often talk about health and well-being and we give out tools and tips and sometimes discuss topics that are a little bit fringe or alternative, this is very much for information only. It is not individual medical advice. So please, if you have any health concerns, make sure you go and see your own practitioner.